0: now, Father, we come on this resurrection morning worshiping you for all that you are in Christ for us and all that we are now in Christ for you. And we ask, Father, this morning that you would speak to us through your word and reveal to us the glory of our excellent Savior and the glorious gifts he has given to the church and how he has blessed us as a body of Christ, to minister to one another, to help us live consistently with the freedom that we have now in Christ, the freedom to not be in bondage to sin anymore, but to live in such a way that glorifies our Father and shows the world what God is like. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless us now and teach us and revive our hearts and change us, we pray, for the glory of our Savior Jesus, amen and amen. This morning, our text is Ephesians chapter four, and so you can start making your way there as I introduce what we're going to say. I want to start, first of all, in the Old Testament, however, because the central personality of the Old Testament was the coming king, the coming king who would rule God's promised kingdom. He was unlike any other man who would ever live in the world, He was born of a virgin. He was despised and forsaken and stricken and pierced and crushed and oppressed, and he was afflicted. Daniel speaks of him as the son of man. The prophet Isaiah said that the government would rest upon his shoulders and that his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, and there would be no end or increase of his government or his peace, the Lord himself would bring it about. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. And more than that, he would be the savior of his people. We move forward into the gospels out of the Old Testament, and we find that Matthew's whole point of his gospel was to demonstrate that the promised king of the Old Testament had indeed come. The whole purpose of Matthew was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the promised king. He is the only one in human history who ever fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament to their fullest. He came, however, but his subjects rejected him. They didn't want him as their king. Nevertheless, not even their rejection could keep him from rescuing his people, whom he loved. And this he did through his death on the cross, and this he proved by the resurrection. We all enjoy a great story, especially one that's full of action and intrigue and complicated bits and strategies of cloak and dagger, but especially the case when the story happens to be true, and that's certainly the case with what we find in Jesus Christ but there are other such such stories. Let me kind of set this up by telling you one. One such story played out when I was but 12 years old, living in New Jersey. It was in late June of that year, 1976, our nation was about to, to celebrate its bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. On the other side of the world, however, the mood was anything but celebrative. On June 27th, an Air France jetliner with 246 passengers was hijacked by an Arab terrorist group as it lifted off into the skies over Athens, Greece. Armed with guns and grenades, the hijackers took control of the plane and diverted it to Libya, where it refueled and then continued its course down to the country of Uganda, Africa. Upon arrival in Uganda, the terrorists who were part of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO as most of us know it, unloaded the passengers into an an old airport terminal and, and dug in for a long standoff against the world. On June 29th, they made contact with negotiators in Paris and demanded the release of 53 convicted terrorists held in Israel and France and Germany and Switzerland and Kenya. These nations had 48 hours to comply, and if they didn't comply, the terrorists would blow up the airplane and kill all of the hostages. One day later, July 1st, it was learned that the passengers were divided into two groups. One group was made up of various different people from different nationalities, different countries, different ethnicities. The other group was made up exclusively of Jewish men and women. Some of the the non-Jewish passengers had, of course, had no idea what was going to take place next. But all of the non-Jewish passengers were then boarded onto another Air France airplane and sent to Paris, where they were released. It became obvious that the terrorists' hostilities were focused exclusively on the country of Israel. If something were not done, 105 Jewish men, women, and children were going to die. But what could be done? Uganda's a long way from Israel. And even if a military force could reach the Ugandan airport terminal, the attempted rescue would most likely turn into a horrific massacre and bloodbath in which none of the hostages would be rescued. Nevertheless, secret plans were put in place. In fact, so secret that not even the Knesset, not even the Jewish parliament, even knew about the plans that were being set in place. As Israeli generals fashioned a complex plan of extraction and salvation, as it were, of their comrades. In fact, so secret was this plan, it was never even presented on the Knesset floor until it was time for a vote, and by then the planes were already in the air. It was called a rapid assault extraction and withdrawal operation. The generals dubbed it Operation Thunderball. It involved 200 soldiers, a force that was carried by five C 130 Hercules aircrafts. It would have to land in the dark and on an unlit airstrip in Uganda. The soldiers' approach would be disguised by a black limousine, Mercedes limousine, and some Land Rovers that would appear to be approaching as Ugandan dignitaries when the, when the um, terrorists would see them. Their weather was terrible for flying. The terrorists were well-armed and supported by the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. Remember him? The chances of success were small, but the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, was willing to take the risk. When the time came for the assault, the planes managed to fly for hours through terrible storms and somehow make it to the airstrip within 30 seconds of their planned destination time. Before the planes stopped, the limos and the Land Rovers were already slipping out of the back of the planes and speeding toward the terminal. Under cover of darkness, the assault was able to hit the terrorists with complete surprise. Gunshots rang out from within, glass was shattered, and several were injured. But amazingly, within three minutes of their landing at the airport, the IDF had complete control of the terminal. All the terrorists were dead. Only two hostages were lost in gunfire, and the IDF only lost one man. Interestingly enough, for those of you who are Israeli history buffs, that one man was Benjamin Netanyahu's brother. But this event went down in history as one of the most successfully planned and executed rescue operations of all time, and it still holds that honor. It was cause for great rejoicing and celebration all over the Western world because Israel demonstrated that terrorist hostage situations could be dealt with decisively and successfully with very little loss of life. This is one, one of my favorite adventure stories. Because it's true, and I can't tell you how much I left out of the story, which just captivates me every time I read about it. And I enjoyed being refreshed on it again this week, but you know the Bible tells of an infinitely greater military extraction and withdrawal rescue operation. But it's not found in the Old Testament or in the Gospel of Matthew. Rather, it's revealed for us right here in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And beginning with verse 1. Let's stand together as I read this for us to refresh us on this wonderful, pivotal text of Scripture in understanding our Lord's ministry to His church. Paul says, Ephesians 4, verse 1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another. In love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one, is, well, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now the expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He also, uh, he who descended is also he who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. May the Lord have his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. What Paul is talking about here. In this context, is the fact that Christ has given gifts to men. In fact, he gave gifts specifically to his church, which we'll see in a few minutes. <laughs> but before he mentions any of those specific gifts, he uses, he points us, his Gentile audience, to kind of a loose quotation of Psalm 68, verse 11, as a comparison passage, passage to show how Christ received the right to give those gifts to his church. Now, we need to understand that Psalm 68 is what is known by theologians as a victory psalm. It was composed by David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusites. That is very significant because the Jebusites lived on a place called Mount Zion. And it was David who led his army to seize that city, which later became known as Jerusalem the city of David, and Mount Zion would eventually be the place upon which the temple would be built. But after this battle, there was great celebration, and that's where Psalm 68 comes in. And that bit of context is important because in ancient times, after a king won a great victory over his enemies, he would bring home the spoils of war to his people. Spoils such as gold and silver and clothing and horses and slaves and art and anything of value. In fact, we know this is exactly what the Roman general Titus did after he sacked Rome in 70 AD. If you know anything about Rome or if you visited Rome, I have not, but I've seen many books and pictures of Rome And you can't hardly study Rome at all without seeing the image of a certain piece of architecture right in the middle of it all. And it stands there on on a major road, and all the cars have to go around it. And it's called the Arch of Titus. It's a tribute to the general Titus, the very general who sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And what's amazing about that piece of architecture, that memorial, that monument. It's at the top of it, all the way around the Arch of Titus, is kind of this, um, this carving of the Roman soldiers leaving Jerusalem, coming back to Rome, and guess what they're carrying? They're carrying the menorah. They're carrying various pieces of the temple that anybody who knows anything about Jewish history could look at and say, this is obviously Titus sacking Jerusalem, and it has been preserved to this day. It's as, if, it's as if no storm or wind or anything, not even war, has been able to destroy this thing or damage it in any way. Perfectly preserved there. And it lives as a testimony, a tribute, a historical tribute to what the nations used to do. When they conquered a city, they would grab all the spoils and they would bring it home. And they would give it as gifts. Yes, the soldiers would take most of it for themselves but they would bring some of it home and they'd give it to uh, the king or the emperor. They would give it to noble citizens. They would give gifts to men. In any case, when an Israelite king would return from war and victory, he would parade his army through the holy city of Jerusalem and up Mount Zion for all the people to see and celebrate over. But he would also parade two more groups, not only the soldiers, not only the spoils, but he would also parade the prisoners of war to show that the victory had indeed been won. And those enemy soldiers who had been captured in battle and brought home is an unmistakable sign of victory, but there was one more group that was always saved till last. And that, however, at the end of the parade, was this final group, and it was a group of Israel's own people who had been held captive by the enemy, but now had been made free. And they would put them at the end for the purpose of rejoicing over at the end of this parade, the final part of the victory celebration or the victory parade. And they even had a name for this group. These men, these men and women were really kind of the highlight of the parade. Everybody, you know, at Christmas time, everybody wants to see Santa, you know, where's the fire truck, where's Santa? Santa. In the Jewish Victory Parade, everybody wanted to see the final, the final act, the final section of the parade, because there were these fellow countrymen who had been prisoners of war in the other country, who had been liberated. They were often referred to as recaptured captives. They were the recaptured captives prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king and brought home and paraded before their people and given gifts and set free. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. And that is what the apostle Paul is pointing us to in this text. He's pointing us to the glory of Christ who descended from heaven... To earth, the lower parts, he was as nothing, he was as no one, and he came for a very specific mission, he came to set his people free, and he came to set his people free by engaging in the battle that would cost him his life, and then he would rise again from the dead, proving that he had indeed been victorious. And then he ascended back into heaven. This is the greatest military rescue mission the world has ever known. It is the entire gospel story all compacted down into 18 words. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we don't normally think of the gospel in these terms, but this is the way God sees it. You see, like the modern-day Israeli Defense Force who was willing to risk the lives of 200 soldiers to save 105 of their own men, women, and children, God was willing to sacrifice the life of every, not every man, but one man, his very own, his only son, in order to rescue captive sinners whom he loved. Captive sinners for whom he was willing to die. Why was there a need for Christ to come and die? Because all of us were held hostage by sin. An enemy entered the world right after the creation and presenting him as man's friend, he was man's arch enemy and proved to be his worst and most dreadful foe. He conquered mankind and has held him in bondage ever since. And this is what the author of Hebrews is speaking of when he writes in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore... Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, likewise also partook of the same. And here's why. So that through death, his own death, he might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's what the gospel is about. It's about realizing that every man, woman, and child is born into slavery. We're born slaves. We're born slaves to our own sin. Satan is the enemy, and he holds every unredeemed person in the world hostage to their sin. You see, a man or woman in sin is a slave to the devil, whether they know it or not. They are in the dominion of Satan. That's why Paul was uh, confronted by Christ on the Damascus Road. And first of all, he himself as a captive needed to be made free, but then God enlisted him in his own service to go out and set the captives free. And so he made, them the, made him the apostle to the Gentiles, and this was his mission, Jesus told Paul that day, to open their eyes, to bring them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God. It was a rescue mission. It was a military act, so to speak. I know people who have come to Christ, even from this church, from every conceivable kind of bondage drugs, alcohol, all kinds of sexual sin. And some who are affluent in their careers, you say that, that can be bondage. You bet. If it's your God, if that's what you live for, that's bondage. People who come out of long-term church uh, membership and finally realize that all of those years, they were lost, and their religion was just a veil over their eyes so that they couldn't see that they were lost. That's the worst kind of bondage because it's so hard to break religious deception, religious unbelief. So many people believe they belong to God simply because they're religious or simply because they're a part of a good church. They show up every Sunday. They check in with God. They check out. They leave feeling good about the whole situation and they're lost. That's why Jesus says, many will say to me on that, Lord, uh, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? And the Lord will say, uh, it doesn't matter. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. All kinds of bondage, all of them, All of those who I know who have come out of that kind of bondage have the same story. Once I was held captive to sin, but now in Christ, I have been set free. I've been set free. So many people think that life, a life of sin, is a life of freedom. But it's the greatest slavery of all. Dr. Martin Lord Jones writes, Think of the masses of people in the world today, who are slaves to drink and drugs and sex and a thousand and one other things. They talk about their marvelous liberty and life, but they are poor, benighted slaves, as they soon discover when they try to set themselves free. Anyone who has ever tried to break free from a long-continued or long-practiced habit knows something about the slavery and the power and the bondage of sin. Isn't that true? I think every one of us know that. Every one of us who has come to know Christ, we know what it's like to be set free. And we also know what it's like to struggle with sin, even as believers. Because like hostages who have been enclosed in captivity for years and years and years and years and years, when they're set free, they're not sure how to act. They don't know what, how do you handle freedom. And how do we break the old habits? I mean, after a while, the chains become a part of you. And yeah, maybe the chains are broken, but maybe you're still shackled to them. And and maybe you can take them off for a little while, but you feel naked without them. And so you go back to the old bondage, whatever it was, alcohol, pornography, you know, maybe it's bitterness. Maybe these are just sins of the heart, idols of the heart, like bitterness and resentment and hatred. Love of money, love of success, power, authority, revenge. They feel natural, but they keep us from living in the freedom of Christ. They keep us living, though free men, living like slaves. And isn't that the the whole point of what the Apostle Paul is saying here? For three chapters, he's been giving theology, He's been telling us about what God did for us in Christ to set us free and make Jew and Gentile this one body called the church. That's what Ephesians is about. He's talking about the predestining power of God to bring all men to salvation. And he's talking about the glorious love of God, which constrained him to be gracious to sinners, though the only thing they had to offer God was their sin. He talks about the fact that God accomplished this, and he's referring to it here. He ascended, he descended, and then he ascended back, showing that he had been, by his resurrection, showing that he had been victorious over his enemies. Therefore, what's the implication? We have been set free. Now, Paul is saying, live like that, learn to live. As people who have been set free. Look at it again, verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, I, notice the terminology here, the prisoner of the Lord. I am a captive, a rescued captive. I was a captive to sin before. I've been rescued by Christ. I'm no longer the prisoner of sin. I am now the prisoner of Christ. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You haven't just been rescued. With that rescue came a calling. You have been given a higher calling. Like, you remember back in the days when we had the the Iran hostages? Remember when Ronald Reagan, the day Ronald Reagan became president, those hostages after I forget how many years were finally set free, and they came home and their lives were changed, Many of them became celebrities of a sort for years. And still, once in a while, we hear their names. Now they have a calling. Now they have a new purpose in life. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't you realize who you are? I'm trying to explain to you the unique and glorious position that you have now that Christ has come and waged war on your behalf and has set you free. Now, live like free men. And look across the page there in Ephesians 4, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, referring to walking as as people who are um, shackled to their sin. Verse 19, having been become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have learned, heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, that time when you were enslaved to sin, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Yes, you may be new to this freedom, and you may live your entire Christian life feeling like in many respects, I'm still, I'm still trying to shake off Still trying to shake off the old patterns, the old anxieties, the old old lusts, the old fears, the old drive for power, whatever it is. But Paul is saying, you can live as free men. You can live as free men, and you should. Not only were we slaves to sin, but consider this. We were under the curse of the law. In Colossians 2, Paul calls the law of God the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And what's he talking about here? He's talking about the Ten Commandments, talking about the moral law of God. The moral law of God is meant to condemn. The moral law of God by itself cannot save anyone. You can't keep the commandments and get yourself into heaven. The law of God was designed to expose your sin. These were decrees against you. And if some remedy was not given and provided for you and for me, that would nullify the decrees and commands against us, we would be doomed. But what did Jesus do? He took the certificate certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. All who are slaves to sin are under the curse of the law. But it gets worse. The unbeliever is not only a slave to sin and under the curse of law, whether he knows it or not, he is also living under the fear of death. The fear of death. For those who are slaves to sin under the curse of the law, nothing scares them more than the prospect of death. The fear of death holds them in bondage all their lives. It's a tool of Satan to keep people in bondage to their sin. It comes as kind of a a horrific sort of Hedonistic fatalism. It's fatalistic in the sense that there is nothing after life. We're just going to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to nothingness. It scares the fire out of them. But the hedonism is, well, since that's going to happen and I can't do anything about it, let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. And this, this never shows itself as clearly as when a loved one dies. When a person that we love dies, how we respond to that, how we respond to that shows where our hearts are. Now, I'm not talking about grief. And Paul tells us we should grieve. Jesus grieved. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because his friend Lazarus had died and all the people around him were so grieved and he had compassion on them. And he wept, he mourned, he grieved, but never is one who had no hope. Never is one who has no hope. Funerals are a great test of our hope. What do we really believe? What is really in our hearts relative to our perspective on our own lives? Does death bring to our hearts terror? Terror? Or does it bring appropriate senses of grief and joy? I tell you, this week, that was really borne out, wasn't it? With the Wadley baby passing away two weeks before he was born. He was supposed to be born, we thought. And um, what a glorious, glorious time. I didn't get word of that until hours later. My phone was in a different part of my house. But... Fairly early that morning, I got down there, and and as a pastor, these are the times when uh, you know that you're most needed and you most dread walking into that hospital room when someone has died for any reason. But a baby—that's hard. And I walked into that room, and I'll tell you what: there was joy, there was gladness, not celebration but smiles of hope and trust and confidence. And there they were holding their little baby. I got to hold the baby. And you look down on that little baby and think, number one, what a glorious thing life is. And number two, oh God, thank you for your provided provision for death. Use this for your glory. I told, um, we've told Jason and Wendy this all week long, that we're so proud of them for the way they've responded to this. Yes, they've grieved, and it's been hard, but oh my, the joy. And yesterday at the funeral, I, I, I was the last one to go through the line, and I told them, I said, listen, you guys, um, I praise God for you. You've done more to solidify the theology that we teach in this church. You've done more to help people understand what God expects of them in their lives and how to live by faith. You've done more in four days than the rest of us could have done in a year. Because they chose to be faithful at the time faithfulness was required. Listen, the loyalty of a soldier is proven in battle. Not back in camp. Anybody can say how faithful they are and what a wonderful soldier they are and how brave they are and how, how, how devoted they are. But you know what? When you get shot, when the guns are turned on you, when the hardship comes and the shipwreck happens and you get the phone call, that's the real test. Do we trust him or not? Do we believe him or not? Are his promises true or are they just a fantasy to us? And so I asked one of the funeral directors, who's a friend, I said, "Um," I said, so I bet you have some hard funerals. And he said, Oh, brother, most of them are hard. Funerals like this are rare. He said, even among professing believers, they're rare. Oh, the hopelessness and the terrified weeping. It's the fear of death. And for most people, the worst thing that could ever possibly happen is that your life would be taken from you or the life of someone who is close to you. But, beloved, death has lost its sting. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And the implications of that for you and me are eternal and secure. They are the ballast in the bottom of the boat. It keeps our little ship upright when the sli- when the when the waves get out of control around us. If we don't believe in the resurrection, then why are we Christians? It is everything to us. It is Christ. It is Christ for righteousness, yes. It is Christ for salvation, yes. But it is Christ, our hope and our power over sin. He is risen indeed. And whether or not we believe that often is revealed most powerfully when we face death ourselves. And so God looked down upon us. I love this, even when we were dead in our transgressions and decided to perform the most daring hostage rescue ever conceived. I don't know if you're working on our scripture memory passage. Um, If you're not, I exhort you which is just a pleasant way to say, I rebuke you (laughs) in the name of Jesus. There are cards on the back table and out here as well. You should be doing this because listen to the words. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is Ephesians 2. Look at the context. Here we are. Let's look at it, Ephesians 2. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, its bondage of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them, we too also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, this is where our scripture comes in. Next two words, look at me. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. If you're not following along on the the video blog with this, I wish I could unpack this for you today, but I'm going to leave you to... To watch it. But the connection between that text and this text in Ephesians 4 is amazing. Because as Christ went, came coming from heaven to earth, living 33 years, dying, and then being raised again from the dead, and then ascending into heaven, it's the same path for us. Except when he came, he started our rescue. And the disciples thought the whole thing was up when he died. And it wasn't. They didn't know in God's eyes they were dying too. And then when he raised again, it was glorious to them, but they had no idea that in God's eyes they were rising too. And when he ascended back into heaven, we were ascending too. And so he came, this great king who had been promised in the Old Testament. Disguised as a little baby, he was able to slip under the radar right into the slave camp of the enemy without hardly being noticed. And when he was almost identified, when he was a toddler and Satan used Herod to try to kill him, God sent a special forces angel, as it were, to come and lead them out of harm's way. And when he was 12 years old, he made it clear that he understood perfectly why he had been sent into enemy territory. He had come to do his father's business. And so that's what he told his parents at the temple. And at age 30, he had his first firefight with the devil in the wilderness. For 40 days and nights, he was in single mortal combat with man's ultimate enemy, And then consider not only Satan, but the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the doctors of the Mosaic law who hated him and tried to kill him again and again and again. His entire adult life was a continual battle for the safe rescue of the people that God loved who were held hostage by sin. And then came the terrible night in that garden of Gethsemane when he came face to face with what this rescue operation was going to cost him personally. And he cried out. As with great drops of blood coming from his skin, he called out, Father, if it is possible that we can do this any other way, please. But if not, not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew the objective. He was totally committed to it, even unto death. He knew what was at stake. He knew his mission. He carried it out to the full. In the words of the apostle, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so at Calvary, all hell literally broke loose against Jesus. The enemy launched its fiercest attack on the Son of God. The devil assumed if he could kill Jesus, he would get rid of him and thus defeat him. But consider this: as they were killing Him, He was destroying them. And so the apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2:15 that at Calvary Jesus took the, the certificate of debt against us and nailed it to the cross and he disarmed the demonic host that kept his people in bondage and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them by death. Beloved, behold the glorious, militant Christ. Behold the glorious, militant Christ, who came to wage war to rescue his people, from slavery to sin, and then proved it for the world to see by bursting forth from the grave on the third day, thus declaring forever, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? You know why there was joy in this room yesterday? Even though there was a little bitty casket here that couldn't have been more than two feet long. You know why there was such joy here? You know why it took just as long for the group that was about this size yesterday, just as long for the group to file out as it did for the whole service to happen previous? It was because every person wanted to hug the Wadleys and smile at them and rejoice. And you know who had the biggest smile on his face? Jason. And next to him was Wendy. There was no wailing. There was no bitterness. I've seen families in funerals just sit there, and as people went by, they didn't even acknowledge because of their bitterness. And I could see Jason and Wendy whispering scripture and whispering thank yous and ministering to every person who came by. How is that possible? Only one way, death has lost its sting. So when Jesus finished his mission on earth, every enemy that could hold God's people hostage were defeated. Thus having completed his mission, he rose triumphantly from the dead and ascended from the earth back into heaven and now, as Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. God honored Jesus. God honored him like a mighty military general coming back from war victoriously. <laughs> Returning home from battle, and Paul says here in Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That is, he captured the enemy's captives and brought them home. That's us. That's me. I was one of those captives. And some of you hearing my voice today are still captive. But this is God's description of the birth of the church and the new birth of every believer? How did this mysterious and miraculous community of diverse people ever come into being made up of Jews and Gentiles and all kinds of nationalities? By the militant intervention of Jesus Christ upon our hopeless bondage to sin. There are two objectives Paul has here. One is to reveal to us how precious the church is to God and the other is to reveal how glorious Christ should be to the church. We sing about Christ every Sunday. All I have is Christ. He's my everything. I and mean, we sing that more precious than silver. And we have so many songs to sing of Christ and every one of them are appropriate for the church. But that's how we should live as well. We are the wealthiest people in the universe because we have Christ. Now, a lot of people get hung up on verses 9 and 10 about him descending into the lower parts of the earth. Listen, all Paul is saying here is that when you read Psalm 86 and it talks about the king who ascended, our thoughts should focus on something infinitely more greater than a victorious king of Israel walking up Mount Zion to the temple. Rather, we should think of the one who ascended victoriously into heaven itself after having descended the incalculable distance from heaven to earth in order to conquer the enemy and rescue us all who believe. And to what height did he ascend? To the height of the very throne of God himself, where he now fills all things as only the almighty, omnipresent God can. This is an especially interesting text in light of the fact that we are currently in the middle of a discussion of 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 about the spiritual gifts. After the resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven, and what did he do? He gave gifts to men. He gave gifts especially, specifically to the church. Pick up in verse 11, Ephesians 4. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the works of service, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Beloved, that's what the gifts are for. I mean get the image in your mind. The great general, Jesus Christ, attacks the enemies of his people who were held hostage. He rescues them. He brings them home and parades them before the throngs of heaven. And he gives them gifts. And that's what the spiritual gifts are about. The spiritual gifts are now about we who live on earth... And if not ascended into heaven physically yet, those gifts are for us while we still live here. And the purpose of these gifts is very clearly explained here, so that we as a church body, so that we and all of the individuals in it would grow together into a mature man, as one who is not in bondage to sin, is one who is able to walk in a manner worthy of his calling to which we've been called in all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In other words, that we would look like Jesus in the way that we live, not only when people see us, but when nobody sees us, which is just another way of saying that we would live in such a way that demonstrates that we are set free. We don't prefer the shackles on us. We don't prefer... The symbols of bondage that we once had, we don't prefer them anymore. We're doing everything in our power to get rid of those things, to put off the old man and to put on Christ in its stead. And God gives us the gifts so that we can minister to one another in the church to help one another grow into that kind of freedom in Christ. Freedom to do as we please? No, Freedom to live apart from sin. Freedom to not be mastered by the deceitful lusts of our own evil hearts. Freedom to live not as slaves anymore, but as those who are set free. And beloved, this is what discipleship is about. You see how all this connects? This is what discipleship is about. It's about one believer who was rescued from slavery, helping another believer... Who's rescued from slavery to live like freed men. You know what happens? I was talking to Rick Canariato this week about his ministry in the jail. And he was telling me yesterday, he said, you know, one of the problems that we're facing is when these guys get out, sometimes recently here because of budget cuts, they're just turning these guys loose. And they're giving them like, uh, you know, 12 hours notice, 24 hours notice. And they're set free. And these guys uh, that Rick is ministering to is, you know, they're, they're, they're scared of that. They don't know how to live out there. And here they're in the jail and they're being taught the word of God and they're being brought to Christ. But when they get out, what do they do? They don't know how to live. And so they're forming strategies. How, how can they train these guys how to live when they get out? This is the same kind of thing Paul's dealing with here. We've been set free. Now we are free. Be careful. There's all kinds of different bondage you can get in, even though you're a free man. And, beloved, that's why you need to be a part of a good church. You need to be connected with people who are living in freedom and struggling to do it every day because of the natural inclinations of our hearts is to enjoy the old pleasures of being slaves. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that foolish? And yet it is man. You see, beloved, when we think about the resurrection this morning, we should realize that the purpose of that glorious event was not only to demonstrate that Jesus was Israel's promised king, but that he had come for the specific purpose of rescuing men and women and boys and girls who all their lives have been held captive by the tyranny of sin. This is not simply theological. This is personal. Because frankly, one of those people who needed to be rescued was me. And one of those people who struggles to live in his freedom in Christ is me. And you know what I need? I need you. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need people like the Wadleys to show me how to grieve to the glory of God. I need so many of you who are in this body who are gifted in ways that I am not. To show me how to live in a way that's more gracious, more merciful, more organized, more passionate for lost souls. Some of you men, you young men, some of you young lions, as you've been called. I see a, a kind of Christ in you that I long for more in me. We need each other. This is what the gifts are about. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he secured them for us so that we would not just be a religious institution, we would be a powerful force in the world to show the world how glorious our God is. One of the things that made the Israeli Defense Force Rescue Operation so incredible in military history It's the fact that with all the bombs exploding and the bullets flying, they only lost two hostages. Two hostages. That is amazing. It's amazing. Many times these operations, all the hostages are are killed. Two out of over 100. And that is amazing. But you want to hear something more amazing? Infinitely more amazing. Revelation tells us that the believers who have been rescued by God through Christ in heaven are a throng that cannot be numbered. And when Jesus was referring to his mission, coming to a close in John chapter 17, the night before he died, he said this to the Father, of all those you have given me, I have lost none. 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 Jesus' rescue mission was perfect. Jesus' rescue mission was an eternal rescue.